Tonight we'll be in Psalm 27. If you will please turn there with me. And once you are there, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 27. It says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Good evening, everyone. It is good to be with you tonight. And if you're taking notes, tonight's study of Psalm 27 is titled The Heart of a Disciple. And today marks, as Max said, the last Sunday of Alexander's paternity leave. Um, so rest assured, he's back in the pulpit next week after his hiatus, and he'll continue preaching for a few more psalms um, over the next few Sundays before we jump back into our study through the book of Luke. And unfortunately, this week we've seen examples in the news of how evil man really is. We have seen how disordered man's desires really can be. The murder of innocent children and teachers in the Texas shooting, the ongoing support of the murder of innocent children in the abortion protests and abortion supporters, the report of hundreds of ministry leaders accused of sexual misconduct, sexual abuse, and assault. We can all attest to the brokenness of our worlds, and we see it daily. And hopefully, our hearts still mourn over it daily. Hopefully, we haven't become numb to it, because sin festers when we aren't doing our best to fight against it. Sin festers when we become numb to sin. Sin can overcome anyone. Sin even gets the best of ministry leaders. Thankfully, though, God's Word can help us to understand the tragedies that we see, and it can help us to begin to realize and see why these things happen, how sin can get the best of people when their desires are out of line. 
God's word can also sober us enough to realize that we aren't above committing any of these heinous sins. You may be confident that you'll never do anything as egregious as the Texas shooter did. You may even be confident that you won't fall into sexual misconduct the way we've seen ministry leaders fall. But I promise you, they didn't just stumble into major sin. It was a constant practice of negligence, of sinful thoughts, sinful desires, small sinful actions that have led to the committing of these serious sins. And we contrast this with what we see of David in Psalm 27. David's desire, the thing he asks of the Lord, the thing that he seeks, is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. And it's the one thing that he desires. His desire is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And I assure you, the men and women who don't have a heart like this, who don't have a heart whose pure desire is for communion with God, will be inclined to drift towards sin. They will be inclined to not have a repentant heart over their sin. Their sin will continue to fester and to grow into larger sins. And as James says in the New Testament, that when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. It all begins at the desire level. Now, I don't have any great solutions for these issues, for our culture, for our world. Nobody on this earth does. But I do think that this nearly 3,000-year-old psalm has some guidance for how we can navigate the sin in our lives and the sin in lives of those around us to where we can move forward in pursuit of God and away from these tragic sins. So what makes a disciple of Christ? What makes a follower of God a follower of God? Is it merely just the way we live? Is it only just what we believe? And Psalm 27 gives what I think to be the best answer to that question. The Psalm gets to the heart of what it really looks like to follow God, to be obedient to God. And we see not only that David seeks the Lord, he also waits on the Lord. And most of all, his desire, the one thing he asks of God, is to dwell in his presence. I think that's the whole purpose, the whole argument of this psalm is that God's people seek him, they wait on him, and they desire intimacy with him. And the flip side of this is the result that we see in the world around us today. Men and women drowning in sin that is harmful to their own lives and to the lives of others. When someone is not actively seeking God, when their true greatest desire isn't for God, it brings forth sin. This one thing, this one desire, is what drives everything in this psalm. And in this psalm, we'll see descriptions of the adversity that David is facing. In his life, we'll see the confidence and the trust that David has in God. And we'll see that in the midst of all this adversity, in the midst of David's confidence, in the midst of his faith, more than any deliverance or protection that David could request from God, his deepest desire is just to dwell in God's presence. It's the only thing that he seeks. And my hope and my aim for today is that the desire of David's can become your desire, can become my desire, and can become the desire for all of God's people. Because we all know we live in a world of disordered desires. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that in this new covenant, people know the truth, but they suppress the truth. 
we often don't desire the things of God. We desire the things of this world, and this traces all the way back to the fall and original sin that we now inherit a sinful nature. Our desires are disordered. And we can all attest that our one desire has not always been to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life. And that may not even be your desire as you sit here in church today. You may have come into this place desiring many things besides just to dwell and to abide in God and His presence. But whatever your desire may be, it will never suffice. It will never satisfy if it isn't the same longing that David has. The one desire is for David to dwell in God's house, to abide in God's presence, to delight in God's person. That desire is the only desire that will ever truly satisfy. That is the chorus of the psalm. David's desire fuels his action. The one thing he desires is the thing that he seeks. I was recently in a conversation with a friend talking about this idea that our desires match what we seek. They go hand in hand because if they didn't, it would wind up in two places. It would either be one, some desire without seeking it, and it would lead to apathy or slothfulness or laziness. Or someone might be trying to seek something that they don't really desire, and it's a futile effort. They'll run out of steam because they can't sustain the pursuit of something that they don't truly desire. Our desires always went out. I was recently reading an early church father for a class, and he writes on this topic of the human will, and he says this, but as to the will, it cannot disobey itself. No one wills what he does not want to will. And this quote helps us to understand that eventually our desires will win out. They may be good, they may be bad, but our desires win out at the end of the day. The human will cannot disobey itself. And this is why our desires are so important. This is why seeing David's desire and seeking that to be our own desire is so important moving forward in the life of a disciple and the life of a follower of God. This is why it matters to set all this up before we even get into the text because what we desire has a direct impact on our walk with the Lord. My goal today is not to guilt trip you, not to show you how your desires aren't where they should be, because for some of you in this room, your desires are where they should be. You do desire God. You desire intimacy and relationship, and you're pursuing Him. My hope that this psalm will be an encouragement to your walk, will be a challenge if you need it. But overall, I hope this psalm will grow your affections towards God, grow your love for God, that He will continue to be, or maybe even for the first time, truly become the one thing that your heart desires, the one thing that your soul seeks. So we'll follow the structure of the psalm, and we'll break it up into four different sections. The first three verses is David's confidence in God. Verses 1 through 3 is confidence in God. Verses 4 through 6 will be David's pursuit of God. Verses 7 through 12 will be David's prayer to God. And then verses 13 and 14 will be David's assurance of God. So if you join with me in reading through these first three verses, David says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat at my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. 
And David begins the psalm with a posture of confidence that he maintains throughout the entire psalm. And he starts with these rhetorical questions of whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? For a specific purpose. That because he's a follower of God, because he's one of Yahweh's people, he need not fear anyone. He not, need not be afraid of anyone. They're a rhetorical question because they don't need an answer to them. The answer is known before the question is even asked. And there's great confidence from David in who God is. God is David's salvation. He is his stronghold. He is his light. He doesn't just know of God. David doesn't just know of God being a distant God. He knows God personally. God is David's place of refuge, his protection, his place of safety. And David testifies to that in verses 2 and 3. And we see that God's protection of David is part of what drives David toward intimacy with God that we see later on in the psalm. Knowing who God is, knowing his care for his people, knowing the great love with which he loves his people is what drives David's intimacy with God. It's what should drive our intimacy with God. We see the result of God's care for David here in verses 2 and 3, and David displays his confidence in the face of the adversity that is in front of him. And the dating of the psalm is unknown. We don't know exactly when in David's life he wrote this psalm, but what we do know is that David's life was constantly full of adverse situations. And this posture of confidence and trust in God is one of true, solid faith in God. He says that despite all that is against him, he will be confident in the Lord. His confidence comes from his relationship with God. His intimacy with the Lord drives his faith, no matter what the circumstances are around him. After David has now established his confidence, he's established his faith in God, he moves into his relationship with God, and this is what drives the rest of the psalm. If you'll read with me, verses 4 through 6, David says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in a shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. And this is the hinge point of the entire psalm. We are introduced in the first three verses of David's confidence to his faith in who God is. And we know that he is a follower, but now we get a glimpse into the heart of the follower. The book of Acts in the New Testament refers to David as a man after God's own heart. He desired to be obedient. He desired to commune with God. He desired to please God. He loved God's law. David's desire for intimacy with God is what drives his relationship with God. And this is the heart of the disciple. Earlier I asked what makes a disciple. I asked what makes a follower of God a follower of God. I think this verse marks the beginning of the answer to that question. It begins at the heart level. It begins with the personal relationship with God. David didn't do this for all to see. This was his own individual prayer to God. This was his own desire for intimacy with God. He not only desired to dwell in God's presence, but he also sought to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Followers of God gaze 
upon his majesty. They look upon his beauty. They seek to gaze upon his beauty. God's beauty is nothing like what most of us think of right away when we think of the word beautiful. God has no form that he can't be physically beautiful. Christ, even Isaiah says that he will have no form of beauty that he would be desired. So we know that it's no physical beauty of God that we gaze upon as his followers. We gaze upon the character of God. We gaze upon who God is. And that's how we can look upon his majesty. That's how we can gaze upon his person. His holiness is perfection. His majesty is astounding. His glory is unable to be seen. His mercy is incomprehensible. The list could go on and on, and it does go on and on in the pages of his word. And as worshipers of God, we seek to gaze upon his beauty. We look at who he is. We look at his character. We look at how he loves. We look at his perfect holiness. We can see it all and stand in awe before the throne of God. God's followers gaze upon his beauty. Let me ask you, do you you see the beauty of God? If you don't, do you search for the beauty of God? Do you gaze upon the beauty of God that you see? That's what his followers do. We've been doing the meditation at the beginning of service for almost two years now, nearly 100 ballpark Sundays, and rarely has a single attribute of God ever been repeated. There's so much in God's Word to meditate on, to gaze upon, to look upon, to worship. There's so much to His character. That's what makes Him beautiful. That's what makes Him glorious. As we gaze upon His character, there's no form that we need to gaze upon. We look at who He is in His Word. The great Puritan Matthew Henry says this. He says, the harmony of all of God's attributes is the beauty of His nature. The harmony of all God's attributes is the beauty of his nature. This is what God's people worship. This is what we look to and praise him for. All the characteristics that we could think of come together to harmonize, to form what makes his nature beautiful, what makes God beautiful, what makes God someone to be worshipped. And what's even greater about where we are at compared to where David was at is that we are on this side of the cross. David knew God's love. They knew God's love intimately, but we get to see God's love in a totally different way than how David did. David knew the Messiah was coming, but now we get to see and celebrate the way that the Messiah came, the life that Messiah lived, the life that Christ lived, and the death that he died, and the resurrection that he was resurrected with. And we get to see this all because God loves his people, and all because he came as a sacrifice to make right relationship between God and his people. This is just part of an inkling of God's character, of his beauty, of his attributes, is his love for his people, is what we gaze upon, it's what we look upon, it's what we worship as his followers. But intimacy with God doesn't stop at dwelling in his house, dwelling in his presence, or gazing upon his glorious person. It's also inquiring in his temple. And to inquire in his temple is another way to allude to seeking the presence of of God. At the point in time when David wrote the psalm, the temple wasn't built. The temple wasn't built until David's son Solomon built it. And so we know that this isn't the physical temple that David is talking about. It's a spiritual presence. David seeks to be in God's presence. He seeks God's wisdom. He seeks God's guidance. It's David's desire to be conformed into the image of God. 
his desire for obedience in communion with the Father, is his ongoing pursuit of intimacy with God. And verses 5 and 6 in this section show the interplay of David's relationship with God and God's grace in David's life. and culminates in David's response of praise and worship to God. And David testifies to God's goodness in protecting him in his day of trouble. And by David saying that God conceals under his tent and lifts high upon the rock, he's saying that both high and low, God is his protector. However, this protection wasn't deliverance into the peaceful refuge of En Gedi, like it was when David was fleeing from Saul in 1 Samuel 23. This time, the presence of the Lord is David's stronghold. God is David's protector. He need not flee into hiding with the Lord as his refuge. David's response to this is praise and worship. He brings an offering of sacrifice to God, not for the repentance of sins, but for this joyous celebration. And he sings and he joyfully shouts to God in response to it. And David sets a great example for how believers ought to respond to God and God's work in our own life. He is generous with his offering to God. His giving is an act of worship, not just a chore. He gives joyfully, just as Paul instructs the New Testament church in 2 Corinthians to be cheerful givers. David embodies what a cheerful giver really looks like. He offers a sacrifice with a shout of joy. He makes melody. He sings to God. David worships God as he's captivated by God. His intimacy with God fuels his worship of God. Does your intimacy with God fuel your worship of him? Do you actively pursue intimacy with God? Do you wonder why you don't necessarily love worshiping in God's house on Sundays? Does making time for church on the Lord's Day feel more like a chore than a joy sometimes? Intimacy with God drives our worship. It drives our joy. If you're struggling to find intimacy with God, it makes sense that it would be hard to find joy in worshiping God. Dwelling in God's presence personally fuels our worship corporately. Pursuit of relationship with Him, gazing upon His beauty, dwelling in His presence, seeing His work in your life can all fuel our joy in worshiping Him. If intimacy is a struggle, we have the ability to, to ask God to be in his presence. Just as David does, it's the one thing he asks of the Lord. It's not only what he seeks, but he asks for it from God. We can ask God to give us the desire if we don't currently have the desire. We can ask God to change our heart if our heart currently isn't for him. This is not m- merely just David's seeking after God. It's his request of God to be in relationship with him, to have intimacy with him. God is not far off and distant from his people. He is near, and his people can dwell in his presence. He wants his people to dwell in his presence. And thus far, we have seen how David embodies the heart of a disciple in his confidence, in his faith, in the way he pursues intimacy with God, and his desires, and his joy, and his worship, and his offering, and in the praises that he gives to God. In the next section, we see David's prayer to the Lord. In verses 7 through 12, David writes this, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. 
Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. In the beginning of David's prayer is a request to God with sufficient cause for his request. He asks of the Lord to hear him, to not forsake him, to not forget him. And he shows God his own pursuits by saying, Your face, Lord, do I seek. He doesn't want his pursuit of God just to be empty toil. He wants his pursuit of God to be a worthwhile effort. And the command here in verse 8, when it says, You have said, seek my face, is addressing more than one person. It's a plural form of the command. And some have taken this to mean that David is repeating a command from God to his people to seek his face. And David is responding and answering with his own obedience to the command. It's like he's saying, Lord, you have told us to seek your face, and I have, and I do. He declares to God his own personal obedience, his own heart of obedience to God's commands. David is not only confident in who God is, he's also confident in his pursuit and in his faith in God. And so to encourage us to be confident in our own pursuit of God, not to be prideful or overlook our sins, there's a time and a place for checking your heart or considering your ways, as the prophet Haggai has reminded us on our Thursday night Bible studies. But we also ought to be confident in our pursuit of the Lord. We can't live our Christian walk consistently fearful that we aren't actually following God. We can't live our Christian walk consistently fearful that we're not doing it enough or loving God good enough or following Him to the best of our abilities because we're never going to truly be following Him to the best of our abilities. We, aren't, we can't think that we aren't truly a disciple of Christ. We can be confident disciples, just as David is a confident follower of God, we can be confident followers of God. David tells God that he is seeking his face, he's seeking his presence, and we can do the same. God does not want us to live paralyzed by the fear that we might not truly be following him. He wants us to confidently follow him with our gaze set upon his beauty and not be distracted from the mission he has called us to as disciples. We cannot be prideful in this pursuit and, and overlook our sins and overlook our shortcomings, but we must confidently pursue God and know that we are pursuing and know why we are pursuing him. If we are constantly consumed with our own failures, with our own sins, with our own shortcomings, we become more focused on ourselves and we become focused on God. It is not what God's desire is for his people. He desires his people to pursue him, to dwell with him, to grow in their confidence in him, and to not be focused on ourselves. Be confident in your pursuit of God. Don't be prideful of your pursuit, but be confident that you really are pursuing God. He has laid out in his word what it looks like to follow him, what the heart of a disciple looks like, what it looks like to truly love God. We have that given to us in his word so we can see that and we can follow that and we can know that we truly are following God. And in verse 9, it seems as if David knows that even in his confident pursuits of God, it is still up to God to be present or not. He is confident in God. He's confident in his relationship with God, but he still asks God for his presence. He trusts God, yet he realizes who he is before God. This is a wonderful heart posture that we all can learn from. David recognizes that God is the one in charge 
of salvation. And he seeks and he pursues God, but he knows, just as he said in Psalm 8, that salvation belongs to the Lord. This is a great model for how we can walk out our faith, confident in our pursuits, but humble before the one who we are pursuing. We must seek God. We must know that we are seeking God. But most of all, we must know that God is the giver of salvation. He is the very reason that we can have confidence. Bernard of Clairvaux, a 12th century monk, wrote this about the pursuit of God. He says that God is both the efficient cause and the final object of our love. He gives the occasion to love. He creates the desire to love. He brings our affection to its fruition. And this quote can help us to understand that our confidence doesn't come merely from our own pursuits, but it comes from the one who we are pursuing. God is both the efficient cause and the final object. God is the giver of the occasion to love. He, he creates the desire in us to love him. And he brings our affections to their fruition. Our confidence doesn't come just from our own pursuits, but it comes from the one who we are pursuing. And David's confidence in God continues into verse 10 as it continues to the rest of the psalm. And some commentators think this verse 10 is a hypothetical situation with his father and mother. They think that David is saying that even if they were to forsake him, he finds safety and comfort in the Lord. And this is profound, yet easy to gloss over in terms of everything else that this psalm has to offer us. But I want you to imagine for a minute the weight of being forsaken by your parents. I know if that would happen in my own life, I would be distraught. I'm sure for most of you, the idea of being forsaken by your parents presents you with a challenging situation. And this is the confidence that, and the trust that David has in God, that even if his family were to let him go, he remains steady, he remains steadfast, he remains committed to the Lord no matter what his family situation is. This is what makes testimony so great when we hear of someone who commits their life to the Lord knowing that their family doesn't approve of the decision for them to become a Christian, actively making the decision to follow God, knowing that their family members might forsake them for their decision. It just creates this wonderful testimony of faith in the person. And David embodies this deep trust in the Lord as well, that no matter what happens to his family life, his trust is in God. And David's prayer includes requests for continued guidance from God, for progress on the level path that he's on, for protection from the violence that might await him. David knows his frame. He knows that despite how much he may follow God, he continually still needs God's protection in his life. He needs God's leadership, his guidance, his blessing. He has seen the protection from God in his life, and he continues to ask for more. He knows he needs more from God. Through David's prayer, we see this embodiment of what the heart of the disciple continues to look like, and that the heart of a disciple trusts God. They are confident in their own faith, as well as they are confident in God. They humble themselves before God. And above all else, they are confident in God. They trust God above anything else, even above their parents. In the final two verses, this assurance of God section of the song marks two of the chief characteristics of a follower of God. The assurance a disciple can have and the ability to wait for the Lord. Verses 13 and 14 say this, 
I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, lest your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And here, once again, we see David's not only reliance, but confidence in God. And we see this juxtaposition in the psalm that already we see that David is seeking God and God has commanded him to seek him. And now David responds with seeking him. And now he says, wait for the Lord. Wait on God. And these seemingly contradictory ideas actually work hand in hand with each other in the life of faith. Al Mohler writes that waiting on God is active reliance on God. This, this idea of active reliance is part of seeking God. It's part of your pursuit of God. It's part of pursuing intimacy with him. Just as David trusts God for future deliverance, for future protection, we can wait on God to be our provider as well. The whole life of a follower of God is made up of seeking God as well as waiting on him. Waiting on him to call you to the next place he wants you to be, waiting on him to confirm that your desires are his desires, waiting on him to give you wisdom when you ask of it. We often wait on God, and his timing often looks different than the timing that we desire. And sometimes we pray and ask for something, and he gives it to us months or years later. Sometimes we pray and ask for something, and he answers that prayer completely in a way that we did not expect. However, while we are waiting on God, whether it's an, an answer to a prayer or discernment or wisdom or whatever it may be, we never stop seeking God. We never stop living our lives in pursuit of intimacy with God just because we are waiting on Him. Just as we ought not to sit on the couch and waiting for God to reveal to us our life calling, we continue to pursue our passions and our giftings and our strengths and to discern what really God wants for our lives. The same is true just in the walk in the daily life of faith with God, that God's people never cease to seek Him, to seek His glory, to seek relationship with Him, even while you are waiting on God. And David says, to be strong, let your heart take courage. It gives us this assurance that because he, can, he believes that he looks upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living, he knows that's going to happen. He can wait confidently. He can wait courageously now. We can courageously wait on the Lord. When we haven't felt close with Him, when life is tough, when trials are overwhelming, we can take heart because our faith and confidence is in the God who never lets His people down, who never forsakes His people, who never forgets His people. Christ tells His disciples in the Upper Room Discourse in John's Gospel, He says that, I have said these things to you. These things are the things of His coming death and coming resurrection, that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God, in the time of David, gives his people courage, tells his people to take heart, gives his people peace. A thousand years later, in the time of Christ, Christ is the giver of peace. He tells his people to take heart. And even still today, God's people can take heart because Christ has overcome the world. David's hope and belief is that he will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This is David's assurance. He will look upon the goodness of the Lord, thus he can wait in peace. The heart 
of the disciple pursues intimacy with God. They seek God. They have strong faith in God. They pray to God. They are assured by God. And most of all, they wait on God. But what are we waiting on now as disciples? We're not in the time of David. We're not even in the time of Christ and his apostles and his disciples. What are we waiting on now? Are we waiting on a world where there are no school shootings, no sexual scandals, no abortions, no sin, wickedness, evil, no hurt, no pain, no heartbreak? Are we waiting on a world that doesn't need a sun because the radiance of the glory of God is bright enough to provide all the light that is necessary? Are we waiting on a world where we really get to dwell in the presence of God, not only all the days of our life, but for the rest of eternity? Are we waiting on a world where every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord? Are we waiting on a world where we get to experience true intimacy in the real presence of Jesus, not just the spiritual presence? Are we waiting on a world where we can look physically upon the beauty of God, the radiance of the glory, as one of the songs we so often sing says that he shall return in robes of white, the blazing sun shall pierce the night, and I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. What are we waiting on as disciples of Christ? One of the chief marks of a disciple is his or her ability to wait on the Lord. Their hope is in this world, it's in the world to come. Their hope can't be found in anything on this earth. Their hope is in the Lord. They are waiting on the Lord. And unfortunately for many, their hope is purely in this world. I remember a conversation with a student on Butler's campus one time, and I just asked her what her hope was in. And she said that her hope was in the goodness of humanity winning out over all the bad humanity, the good politicians winning out over the bad politicians, the good people winning out over the bad people. And in our world today, I think it is a common place where many people put their hope, but it's a woeful place for people to put their hope. The news in the last week alone ought to be a good enough apologetic to speak against that false hope. I hope none of us find our hope in this world because there's nothing hopeful right now about what is in this world. But that hope still remains for so many people. We are in a period of waiting as disciples of Christ. Many Christians refer to the season as the already, not yet. Christ has already come once. He's purchased salvation. He's made redemption available. He's made right relationship with God available. But he is yet to come again. This is what we are waiting on as God's followers. We are waiting on the God who was, who is, and who is to come. The one who was preexistent before the foundations of the world, the one who is currently reigning on high, and the one who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. We are waiting on the final redemption for all God's people. We are actively relying on God. But all the waiting, the seeking, the active reliance, the confidence, the faith, it all begins at the heart level. It all begins with our desires for God. We must ask the Lord to dwell in his presence. It should be the one thing we ask, the one thing that we seek most of all. Communion with God all the days of our life and in the life to come. Disciples of Christ gaze upon his beauty. They are joyful in the good news of the gospel. They are expectantly, hopefully waiting for the life 
in the world to come. So what makes a disciple? What makes a follower of God a follower of God? The heart of a disciple seeks God. He or she pursues intimacy with God. And most of all, he or she is waiting with joyful hope to be united to our Savior in eternal glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your Lord's Day, for a chance to to corporately gather and to worship you, to to learn about your word, to learn about your glorious truth. We pray that you give all of us today, this week, this month, desires for you, desire for intimacy with you, to grow our affections towards you. We know that you are the one who can do that in our hearts, especially when we don't desire to pursue you. When our desires are disordered, we can look to you to correct them. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We ask that you give us strength to, to wait patiently, to wait hopefully, but to seek you all the more in this active reliance as we are waiting for life in the world to come. We thank you, Lord, for, for all that you've done for us through, through Christ, through the cross, through the resurrection. We give you praise for it today. In your name we pray. Amen.